The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, chaos and confusion at the BBC as the Pollard Report and the Newsnight's axed Jimmy Savile investigation is published. We ask what it means for the BBC and what happens next. Also on the show, we take a look at some of the week's other media news. Yes, there has been some. And find out what you should be watching on Christmas Day with Vicky Frost. Not with Vicky Frost, but with Vicky Frost. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. First up, the Pollard Report. Full details at mediaguardian.co.uk, of course. But here's a few choice extracts. Former head of Sky News Nick Pollard described a culture of suspicion and mistrust at the BBC, with rigid management chains that rendered it completely incapable of dealing with the whole Savile scandal. He described a chaos and confusion with leadership and organisation in short supply and a complete breakdown in communication. Plus, it revealed that two senior BBC executives had warned about the so-called dark side to Jimmy Savile before the broadcast of two fulsome tribute programmes last year, Warnings that went unheeded, unheard, or both. But, said the report, while the decision to shelve the Newsnight story was deeply flawed, it was done in good faith and there was no evidence of a corporate cover-up. I'm joined to discuss all this and more by Dan Sabber, the Guardian's Head of Media and Tech, and by Media Talk regulars Maggie Brown and Paul Robinson. Welcome all. Dan, it's the morning after the Newsnight before, if you if you will. What did you make of it? Uh, it was good. It was... A good report. It was 185 pages, not too long, not too short. It was uh, you know, tremendously well written, really benefited from being written by a journalist, had a very clear authorial voice. It didn't pull its punches, but it was also sort of realistic and measured in the conclusions that it came up with. So it's a, it was a great document, and if only Lord Justice Leveson thought, thought along similar lines. Um, I think what was interesting about it, there wasn't any sort of big reveal in terms of informa- you know, informational evidence that had been uncovered, we'd sort of it'd been so well journalised, if you will, it'd been so well sort of written about in the media that we'd sort of pretty much got the architecture of the story. You know, there were some points of detail, I'm sure we'll come on to those, but essentially we've got the architecture of the story. It was interesting about, very interesting, the verdicts it had on individuals, and we can talk about those in a moment, I'm sure. But I thought what was the real point of the report was actually talking about the sort of culture of chaos and confusion, the silo mentality, people, managers not really working in a team basis, not really knowing how to solve problems because they couldn't really get out of their sort of chains of command or lines of command and I think what he did was he sort of lay I'm sure it's true of many big organisations and big media organisations but what he did was he laid bare I think the sort of managerial stasis at the top of the BBC and, and in effect and that's what the trust said in response to this is Tony Hall go sort this out you know you don't you have a group of people at the top who behave like independent barons who don't work together don't help each other don't collaborate solve problems and as a result something like Savile initially sort of falls between the cracks because nobody takes it seriously enough and brings it to air or, 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 or reports it when Newsnight first get the story and then finally um, when the thing blows up as a sort of period of total inertia uh, at the top and nobody can sort of get on top of the story that rapidly overwhelms the BBC. And I think that's what, that for me, that was the core message of Pollard, Pollard's report, not what it said about, although interesting it was, about George Edwards or whoever. Maggie, there's been no shortage of anticipation about what Pollard was going to say. How good or how bad, I should say, was it for the BBC? Was it worse than it was uh, expected or or do you think could it have been worse? Well, it could have been worse if there had been uh, some form of uh, decision to drop the Savile uh, inquiry because of the uh, Christmas uh, tribute programmes, the three programmes that went out. And, I mean, there wasn't any sign of that kind of internal collusion, although I I didn't really ever expect it. I thought in some ways it 
the way the BBC has handled this by appearing to say that, um, for example, people like Peter Rippon, you know, rules that really badly, uh, will remain in some kind of well-salaried post um, for the foreseeable future. I thought that that, their response to this quite, I I don't know how you would put it, a very very forceful report by um, Ampollum, very commonsensical, very straight report. I thought that that was a big flaw. And you can see it playing out now. Uh, you know, only a deputy head will roll. That that, that does not um, play well. What really stood out in that, when I, when I read it, apart from Pollard's uh, kind of very sensible remarks about what journalism should be and how it should be practised, I, I gasped when I saw the um, emails from Nick Vaughan Barrett, the, the head of events at the BBC until the end of last year, because the, the fact that they were well, ignored or, or not read, struck me as extraordinary because this isn't just some small producer. This is a man of great substance and experience. He wasn't just warning about the dark side of Savile. He was actually trying to alert people, I think, more broadly to, you know, hey, we face a big problem here. That, I, I was I was really genuinely uh, surprised that nobody really took what he said seriously. And these were emails that he sent to uh, George Entwistle, who was then... Yes, um, and Jan Young's husband, who was in charge of uh, the, the obits. I mean, and this Danny is the man... Those emails yes, too, but this is the man as you who, said, but th- these emails they, they couldn't recall reading them. Or, no, or but this is the man who did the royal wedding, you know, in, in two th- uh, has done a huge number of really, really big live events. And in fact, I, I was trying to contact him myself earlier this year because after the royal pageant went so badly wrong on the river, one of the people involved with it said, if he'd been running it, it would have worked. We're really seeing. The, the gap that's been left by uh, Vaughan Barrett going. So I, I gasped when I saw I, that, that in, in the report. Paul, what did you make of that? Because as a journalist, obviously looking for, for, for new material and new revelations in this report, and those emails from Nick Vaughan Barrett were, were new. We didn't know about these. He, he talked about a darker side of Savile and said, I think he said he was queasy at the idea of, a, of a running a, two, you know, a, a positive obit. But as so often in, the, in, in these stories, you know, people are at the food chain just say, oh, I don't remember it. Or in this case, I, I didn't read it. So Everyone says, oh, I, I didn't hear about these rumours about Savile. I knew nothing of what was going on. But this shows that someone within the BBC, you know, obviously had heard the, the rumours and, and was, you know, trying to flag them up at the highest level. Exactly. The fact they were ignored was extraordinary. But I think the point is that uh, if he knew about this, I can't believe there aren't many others who also know. It seems to me that uh, people who worked on the Jimmy Savile TV programmes clearly uh, must have had uh, pretty much shared an open secret that uh, Jimmy Savile had a darker side and he won't have been alone. So I, I, it seems to me now what this says is there must be a number of people who have kept quiet for whatever reason for uh, a large number of years about Savile, and it was obviously a well well known within many quarters in the BBC, I suspect. And Dan Robin Lustig, the former BBC Radio Four and World Service presenter in today's Guardian, says that um, the inquiry didn't look further into why these tribute programmes went ahead. It focused very much on news, and I, I guess that was his remit. But do you think uh, he suggested there's a sense within the BBC that the, 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 the news guys think that, that the entertainment part of the corporation sort of got off lightly here and there's not been more analysis of why those went ahead sort of unchecked I, I think that's a good comment and actually the, I think the answer is in your question which is that it wasn't quite in Nick Pollard's remit which is I mean I, one doesn't cook up excuses for, for, for Pollard because I think he, he, he should have been able to cut through it and sort of look at areas like that and that, that might well I think the issue around the tribute programmes probably does merit some further examination I, I think to the slightly broader point I, I can't see how if George Entwistle was DG pre-Pollard I can't see how he would have Survived, I think, missing this sort of darker side emails, these emails that were sent to him, and these warnings, and that he apparently, like all good, like all good chief executives or senior media executives, no, doesn't read their emails because you know why would you? Certainly, there's a real problem there, and, and I and I think clearly some issues which will, I guess will be exhumed in the um, 
uh, in the other sort of sample inquiry that the BBC is running about, which we've heard sort of very little, really, I think. But but we really do need to, I think, hear some more or some you know, interim steps as this sort of uh, as this police investigation just continues to unfold. Too. But, so, it was I, you know, I have watched the uh, three tribute programs. I've, I've got them on DVD, and the first one in particular, which was the hurried one, which came out of Leeds, uh, which is actually um, narrated by Chris Evans and with um, Nicky Campbell giving giving tributes. When you read the report, what it says is that it was sort of commissioned in Leeds and then BBC One, through Danny Cohen, decided to grab hold of it. So uh, there was a lot of different things going on at the same time, and there was, again, this idea that they would revive Jim or Fix It, which was a potential series, which seems to be going on kind of independently, really, if, if you believe everything that's said in the report. This and was it, a Danny Cohen idea, yes, wasn't it? And, 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 but what it actually shows as well is that, again, it, it plays to the central point of the report, that the BBC doesn't act in a unified or collegiate way. Different silos do different things. And they almost seem to be almost perverse in their almost desire to sort of stand aside and let another bit maybe just, you know, jump off a cliff. I, I find the whole thing uh, very, very interesting. From And that's why, of course, uh, we, can, we come back to where we started from, that there will have to be, at some point, uh, quite a big clear-out, I think, at the very top of the BBC, because uh, you can't, I, see, uh, I would have said, change a culture uh, without changing people. Paul, well, possibly Dan, or both of you, I mean, despite... He looked at 10,000 emails, uh, it cost £2 million, spoke to 19 people. It was an exhaustive report, but there are still sort of three mysteries, really, that, that have gone answered. One is why Peter Rippon changed his mind, apparently overnight. Um, uh, one is what exactly happened at this Women in Film and TV, uh, you know, what was the discussion between um, Helen Bowden and George Entwistle about the Newsnight investigation. Both of them had sort of contradictory uh, recollections. And the third mystery is why Stephen Mitchell, the uh, deputy director of news, took the uh, Newsnight investigation off the uh, the list of um, the BBC sort of list of uh, risky, sensitive programmes, and and they all that all remains unanswered. Well, let me comment about the, the middle one, which is the lunch. I mean, Pollard talks about this, the waiting to be told culture, and I think there's, there's, this is something I think that probably is uh, a culture many people would recognise. And it seems as though, as Maggie was saying, there's not there wasn't real proper coordination between director of television and director of news, and uh, clearly um, people seem to be sort of holding back. What's extraordinary, I think, is that if you're a senior manager, you have to be responsible for your actions and responsible for what you uh, manage and, and your output. And people seem to be uh, saying, well, you know, it wasn't me you know, I didn't read the email. And I think that is not acceptable. If you're in a commercial organisation, you absolutely wouldn't expect to be anything other than fired if you've made such a major uh, error. And I think um, to the outside world, the BBC appearing to not have really tackled um, getting to the root and branch and actually letting people go, I think it doesn't, doesn't play well for the BBC. I think it does undermine the BBC's uh, confidence amongst licence fee payers uh, and its ability to actually deal with this. I think as to the journalistic judgments, John, I mean, it's very hard to know what goes on in people's minds. And sometimes people just get things wrong for, for, you know, for for slightly, you know, odd reasons or reasons that are very hard to sort of rationalise post hoc. And I'm sure Peter Rippon, there's not a day that goes by where Peter Rippon must think, I wish I'd sort of, you know, run that, that film on Newsnight about Savile. The only thing I think that maybe sort of sets against that somewhere in that mix is what's also clear in the report is that Newsnight had descended into this complete toxic mess I mean even that wonderful email exchange between Jerry Paxman and Peter Rippon in October when the story all blows 
and Paxman saying to Rippon, you've got to run, we've got to have a Savile story tonight, and we've even got our own journalism in the vaults, and, and Rippon just says, no, you know, no, it's special pleading, I'm not going to do it, and then and, and Paxman's had enough, and he just says, you, you, in, in terms, you're lying on your blog, it was, it was corporate pressure, that's the truth of it, you caved into corporate pressure, and Peter Rippon says, no, honestly, it wasn't, you know, <clears throat> I, might, I might have been guilty of self-censorship, but I just didn't, and then he says, you, you know, almost sort of depressingly, I didn't think the story was a big deal, contested claims about, you know, 40, dating about 40 years, I didn't think it was, it was a big deal. So, look, what's the bottom line with, with, with Ripon? I mean, uh, you know, plain old journalistic misjudgment. I mean, and, and dare I say it, we make those plenty of those at The Guardian too. So these things happen. It's maybe hard to explain, and I'm sure he wish it were otherwise. But I think part of the problem was also that relationship within Newsnight. And, uh, you know, and I think there's clearly a flawed relationship with Myron Jones and Liz McKean. That clearly those relationships are completely broken down. There's a very passionate, I think, producer and journalist who believed in their story, and they just, I think they, they were falling out over it. And I suspect part of the decision making for him was probably I don't like these, my instinct there's nothing that says this, I don't like these people, they're too pushy, they've pushed this story too far and I don't want to run it and they can go away. The, the other thing of course is that um, what actually happened afterwards, after Ripon's mistake was that ITV's exposure spent only £170,000 to make their programme and they, they used two people it wasn't actually that difficult and Pollard makes a very good point in his report that there should be a mechanism uh, and one had assumed that that is what the director of news was there to do, that if you have a story that isn't suitable for one programme, Newsnight, it should have been handed over to Panorama, where Tom Giles and his Panorama team, and we saw only this week with the Barclay twins, uh, they have a very fine track record of doing investigative journalism and tough journalism at a, at a, at a longer length. I also actually thought, I, I, where I've I really did think Pollard was the man for the job yesterday. It was when he quite clearly said that the two journalists involved were right. He absolutely said that he, they were right. And when you read the report, you see all these poisonous moves against them to try to see if they could be sacked. And that seems to me absolutely incredible, that you have the people, the foot soldiers who are doing the work, who get it right, who've been deprived of a scoop, who would have been winning all the awards in the television awards next, next uh, year, uh, were, were robbed, really, of their moment of glory. I think that's a really good point, Maggie, Maggie, actually. There's an email from, I think, one of the press officers is talking about dripping poison against Myrie and Jones uh, in order to sort of uh, damage his credibility. And it's quite clear that the whole corporation viewed in the first three weeks, four weeks, first three weeks of October, maybe all of October, they viewed Jones and McKean were driving the story by, or they it was felt Jones and McKean were driving the story through leaks. I mean, they, they deny they were really involved in that, but, but they felt that the story kept, you know, the BBC misread the situation, they misread the public mood, and the BBC relied so much on this Peter Rippon blog, it was their soul, it was their defence, and they sought to aggressively quash the only people who weren't agreeing with the script, or, or, or weren't audibly agreeing with the script, volubly agreeing with the script, which is Jones and McKean. And so what that is outrageous, really. That is outrageous, and 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 it and it all collapsed. I, rem- I can remember it sort of collapsing at the time when when the blog was corrected, and I sort of I remember thinking, the press office has lied to me. Really, the corporation has lied to me. It's told me for the last two weeks that I should go back and kind of that the Peter Rippon blog was about right. Pieces I'm reading in other papers are going over the top, and 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 I just felt and that was a really serious rupture. Actually, I felt very strongly about that. I just thought, you know, hang on a minute. You know, you're just using the might of the corporation to peddle. You know, and obviously, corporate, you know, press offices work to the dictates of the bosses in the end, but just pushing a line too hard, I think, to squash the whistleblower. Well, thank you, Dan. We'll be talking more about the fallout from Pollard and looking ahead after this. 
Well, it's time now to move on to some of the individuals who feature prominently in the Pollard report. Um, Dan, um, Helen Bowden, uh, her deputy, is, is resigning or retiring, depending on who you ask. Uh, there's a new uh, senior team at Newsnight. Adrian Van Cleveren's moving on from Five Live. We'll talk about him in a sec. But um, Bowden returned to her job as director of BBC News this week. But uh, there was no shortage of criticism of her in the report. Yeah, I'll say. Um, look, I think she faces a really tough time, I think, reasserting her authority over BBC News. And I'm sure I'd be amazed if Tony Hall wasn't looking very hard about whether you know she should be staying in that role, of course. Uh, she offered, one of the things we learned in the report is at one point she offered to resign, but at other points she was sort of also trying to sort of brief, wanted to give an interview to make Peter Rippon's position look untenable. Uh, Pollard sort of says that you know her and her division, she didn't show much leadership in October when the crisis hit. Uh, uh, so, you know, an awful lot of criticism for her. And I, if she can turn it round from here, I'll, I'll be very impressed because I think, uh, to be honest, I think she's living on borrowed time. All I was going to say is that I think it would be a jolly good idea if Nick Pollard became some sort of executive in BBC News, either director or in some sort of uh, maybe updated Mark Byford role. He showed exactly the kind of drive and energy and, and common sense and support for good journalism, which I would have thought somebody in that position needs, plus experience, remember. He has actually worked. He's, he's come up from the grassroots on the Gateshead Times, and he's basically worked in the BBC, in ITN, in radio, and also, uh, of course, for 10 years very triumphantly at Sky News. So um, I think looking at the way that... Um, uh, Lord Patton was um, eyeing him up yesterday. I'd have mm-hmm. thought he would be a, an extremely good recruit to buttress the BBC and, and an independent and sensible voice as well. Paul, when it was put to Tim Davy that uh, no one had been sacked as a result of the uh, report, he said, well, actually, the Director General resigned. But there was also, I mean, there was plenty of criticism for George Entwistle uh, in the report, but uh, the former DG then put out a statement yesterday sort of almost saying, well, you know, I've, been, I've been cleared by this. You know, it showed that I did nothing wrong in relation to the original Savile programme and I did nothing wrong in, in relation to McAlpine. Were you surprised by that? I was surprised. I, I thought the George Entwistle statement really just confirmed what we all probably now know, and that is that George was overwhelmed by events. Um, he just didn't seem to be able to get a grip of things as they were moving. And, and his statement, all it said was, I didn't put any undue pressure on to, to ensure that Newsnight didn't get broadcast. I, I don't think that in any way clears him. I mean, he clearly was not across the issues. He clearly wasn't showing any leadership. And uh, all this chaos was uh, unfurling... Uh, beneath him. I, I think I agree with Dan about um, Helen, who I, I do know. I, I knew Helen uh, when she was at um, Radio T's, commercial radio, 30 years ago, and she is a, a great journalist. I mean, whether she's um, got the, uh, the managerial uh, experience, and she has been at the BBC basically all of her career, and again, something that Nick Pollard made a big point about mentioning in the report, I don't know. I think she, she's going to struggle, as, as Dan said. Um, the, uh, the, the point about um, uh, Steve Mitchell is Steve was going to go anyway. So, I mean, I think Steve Mitchell uh, going early doesn't particularly satisfy anybody. Dan, what, what happens next? Tony Hall becomes DG in March. Well, he's a, he, he's a lucky man in a way because you know what, what's the goal when you're the when you're the boss is to sort of leave the organisation in better shape than when you found it. So I think, like Mark Thompson before him, I think to, Tony Hall is is is, is well placed to do that. Um, he's got a wonderfully free hand. He needs a new, you know, he needs a new director of vision, audio, music. Uh, uh, we've just talked about. I mean, Helen Bowden's obviously got a, you know, got to prove to him that she can she can do that job. Uh, and he's only really got, you know, he's only got one executive in Tim Davy, who has, you know, uh, absolutely hit it out of the park in terms of being a really, you know, credible leader. And I think a lot of people wouldn't have thought Tim would be the man. Who, 
who could sort of act as sort of ballast for the corporation at its moment of crisis, but he really has done so. So he's only got Tim he can rely on. So it's a great moment in a sense to bring in a top team, and I think crucially, touching on what Maggie just said about Nick Pollard, a top team who have got you know some or a lot of outside experience. I mean, what the B really needs is an injection of non-BBC people at the top. The Tim Davy point is interesting because I mean, talking. I was I had a tour of Broadcasting House last week, and it's interesting talking to journalists on the ground, people actually on the desk, you know, um, directors, you know, all of the guys. They thought Tim Davy had done a fantastic job. They said Tim Davy's been pulling together, he's been talking to us, he's been motivating us, and Tim Davy's got a very very good press internally with the BBC staff on the ground. Well, Adrian Van Claveren, as we said, uh, is leaving Five Live, but he's not the only uh, head of a national sports station moving on this week. Uh, also, Moz D has announced he's leaving TalkSport. Uh, station has been there for four years, uh, overseeing quite a transformation, getting more live Premier League football. They've got the Lions Tour next year, and audience just over three million, so he's put on listeners as well. He's off to head up a new uh, digital content company. Paul, are you surprised he's off? I am a bit surprised, actually. I, I know Moz very well. I mean, I, I put Moz onto sport when it was the old talk radio, and so I've known Moz many, many years. He's a great guy, but I think he's going to find it maybe a bit tougher outside than he possibly imagines. You know, it's, it's a tough world out there. I mean, getting businesses is not easy, and talk sport is now doing well. I understand why he might want to go at the top of his game, but I think he might have jumped possibly a bit too soon. But we'll see. I wish him good luck. He's a great guy. And he might have been a contender uh, to take over at Five Live, do you think? Or if not, well, you know who? Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he knows sport. I mean, he worked uh, at Five Live as sort of number two, number three there for a number of years. You know, he's got the ability. He's, he's clearly someone who's been outside, uh, but been in the BBC. So he knows his way around the BBC, but he's got external experience. I'd have thought, as, as Dan was saying, people like that would be attractive now to Tony Hall to look at. He's got to surely bring in some people from outside. It was clear from Nick Pollard's report that there was this sort of sense of the BBC being far too inward looking I mean we know this but it was absolutely confirmed wasn't it and that has to be partly down to the management so bringing in some new blood and some new faces is really important I think and you know you do 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 risk it if people have worked in the BBC before and in other radio news Dan Absolute Radio is uh, back up for sale or maybe maybe it was never not for sale I think it's always been for sale isn't it I mean it's just not Look, radio is sort of consolidating, commercial radio is consolidating like fury. Global are just buying everything and sort of Bauer buying the, the bits that it can be bothered to buy. Otherwise, I think, I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether it's a healthy state of affairs, but I think what's also true, and I'm, you know, from where I sit, it's just for the, sort of the general salience of commercial radio has dropped. You know, when I was a, a younger journalist, dare I say, you know, be constantly there'd be news about, you know, Capital and all the big sort of, uh, ILR stations would be in the business pages sometimes in the in, in the news pages there was a whole narrative around how commercial radio is doing it was part of the sort of conversation you know in media and now we've got these two private owners both pretty sort of a low profile um, e- e- even arguably reclusive to a degree you know neither of them much wants to talk about business or their business they've probably overpaid for all their assets because the market's down and I sort of think less and less about commercial radio which has got to be a pity because there just has to be more competition in the beep with the one honourable exception actually the one we're talking about which is talk sport i think it's the one loud noisy station that i've got some i think people have some awareness of but they lost the you know, name as well didn't they i mean they were virgin radio and then they've turned into a sort of really strange brand so you don't know what they stand for i mean the brand is the, the band is the problem what's interesting about this of course is that um uh, really uh, virgin radio was possibly the reason that um gcap and and that then fell prey to, to global 
because Capital Radio tried to buy Virgin Radio. They didn't actually uh, get it. Uh, Chris Evans uh, came in with some venture capital money and bought it. And that really was why Capital Radio didn't come out on top with that merger with GWR. So it'd be ironic if Absolute Radio ends up at Global Radio, back with Capital, where it would have been 10 years ago. And Dan, it wouldn't be media talk without a Levison update. So, oh, well, it's, yeah. it's yeah. irresistible. Last one of the year. <laughs> I see that the, uh, all the resident parties have been meeting. Uh, talking about royal charters, is that right? Yeah, last used in the Middle Ages. Well, actually, actually used used up until right now, but certainly used from the Middle Ages to. Um, uh, it's all about the royal prerogative, you see, because if you want to create a body, back in my history, history. Oh, it's thrilling back stuff. In I tell you. If you want to create a body that's independent of ministers, what you do is you use the crown to do it, and so. Anyway, none of this really, it's a sort of constitutional absurdity in a way, but the idea is to create a body that will audit the work of of the new revamped PCC without the need for new legislation, Uh, and to do that you create it sort of by by royal magic, by, by royal prerogative, and you create this sort of body. It'll be sort of three wise men. Uh, we haven't had the full details from Oliver Letwin because he's too clever to share them with us yet. That's David Cameron's policy fixer. But we will have this sort of three wise men body. will meet every three years, and it will mark the, it will re- open the Leveson report as if received from tablets of stone, and it will try to work out what the judge meant. That will take them about three months, and then they will audit the the, the, the new PCC and say it's doing a good job or otherwise, and that long-winded device is the one to design to give some strength if you like to the new regular new regulator some uh, public confidence uh, if the public still care or understand this royal charter business without actually having a law so i mean it's a great sort of bit of so constitutional fun and i mean it should say and i should say as a last point the bbc is also established by royal charter so although it is of ancient origin used for founding towns and the like this is you know a, a device for creating corporate bodies that is, you know, still very much in use today. So it's non-statutory, statutory legislation, in a sense. It's, it's. That's right. It's, it's, it's been. That's right. In order to be independent of the, uh, of ministers, ministers have kindly devised this scheme uh, at some length. Actually, in all part, what I really like is they're doing it in trying to do it in all party talks as well. So it's all political parties devised a scheme to try and, uh, and keep the politicians out of the press, which is sort of an amusing irony, isn't it? Excellent. Well, more Leveson next week, well, if not next week, the week after. Dan Saber, Maggie Brown, and Paul Robinson, thanks very much. All right, people, stand by your set-top boxes. It's time to talk TV with who else but Vicky Frost, The Guardian's TV and radio editor. Vicky, welcome. Hello. Now, uh, you're um, living a time-shifted existence in the sense that you've already seen everything that's going to be on TV over Christmas. Pretty much, actually. That is pretty much where I am at the moment. So which programme are you definitely going to be snoozing through? I'm starting with the negatives. Uh, um, I'm that kind of Christmas guy. <laughs> well, Christmas Day isn't appalling. There's nothing on Christmas Day that makes me want to kill myself. I think it is fair enough to say. Even EastEnders? Maybe Even, you haven't well, seen Well, oh, actually, I discount EastEnders because I'm not a soap watcher. So I don't understand why anyone would want to see that much misery on Christmas Day. And I say that as someone who thinks that, you know, Call the Midwife is not for me because it's far too warm-hearted. So it's kind of, you know, that, that there's got to be a middle ground, surely, between, you know, lots of sort of lovely new babies and just, ah, it's EastEnders Christmas special. Um, we're going to start with sort of kids stuff, sort of late afternoon. It all starts with Room on the Broom, which is... Room um, on the Broom? Room on the Broom, which is... Is that a Channel 4 reality show? <laughs> <laughs> There's no more Room on the Broom. You've been ejected. Well, sort of, but no, a, a charming BBC One animation uh, from uh, the people who bought you the Gruffalo. It's um, a Julia Donaldson and a lovely man whose name I always forget. Alex Schiffler. 
Thank you. Uh, exactly. It's it's one of their specials and it is a really charming, lovely thing. Um, I particularly like the cat in it who is really grumpy and sort of eye rolly and it's not too saccharine and there's loads of good jokes for adults. I really enjoyed it. Classy thing. Has he got a wart on the end of his nose and terrible claws and purple prickles down his back? Oh no, that's the Gruffalo. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the description. I've read it a few times in the last few months, but I still can't remember it clearly. Must read it more often. Must not watch Peppa Pig. <laughs> TV bad. Book's good. Exactly. Exactly. So we move from Room on the Broom, then we move straight into the Doctor Who Christmas special, which is on at 5.15, which is very early, I Very think. early. Stephen very... Moffat will be furious. It is. I think it is very early. And also because the snowmen, it's called the snowmen, are quite scary, I think. But uh, then, you know, everyone says that about Doctor Who, don't they? Oh, it's so scary. And Stephen Moffat always says, oh, it's Kids fine. love being frightened, he Yeah, says. exactly, exactly. And, you know, there is some truth in that. I think this is a really quite decent uh, Doctor Who Christmas special after a few years of not that brilliant Doctor Who Christmas specials. It's not... I mean, I mean, I say it's not too syrupy. It is quite syrupy. I mean, they always are, I think. It's a bit flaky, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but there's lots of new things in it for Doctor Who fans. So we have new companion, who of course we've met, but now we meet differently. New companion, Clara. There are new titles, which... I've got to be honest, I didn't get that excited about it, but then I'm not a massive, massive Doctor Who fan. I'm sure lots of people will get excited about them. There's a new theme tune, which sounds rather like the old theme, but just a bit bigger. But again, other people might get more excited about that. Doctor's got a new costume, including a top hat. And uh, the TARDIS, there's a new inside of the TARDIS, which is great, actually, because it was sort of doing my head in, all those silly taps and everything in it. Um, and this is... It's has it got minimalist? Yeah, it has, actually. It's had a, it's sort of had um, a make-under. It's been on uh, whatever that uh, BBC Three thing is where they take all the makeup off and then uh, they look normal again. So it's it's quite a good thing. I think there's lots for people to enjoy. It sort of kicks off that sort of this is the year of Doctor Who 50th anniversary. Still don't know any details of that, of course. It is a good thing. Excellent. So Doctor Who, I'll set that on the old uh, PVR uh-huh. and then not watch it. Uh, what else should we watch? Well, then straight after Doctor Who, we go to the Strictly uh, Christmas special. Oh, I love the Strictly Christmas special. It makes I, me all warm inside. I think Strictly is actually, you know, it's perfect for Christmas, isn't it, really? And I particularly like watching people, you know, having to do really athletic things while you're just sort of lying on a sofa going, oh, I can't eat any more food. It's impossible. So uh, that's quite nice. Katie Brand is on it and is very funny and jolly. And I sort of love her on it because she just does loads of giggling. And um, Fabrice Muamba is on it and uh, does a very good dance. So it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a good thing, I think. It's, it's perfect for Christmas Day. It's, it's kind of mindless. It's a nice little slump before Call the Midwife, which uh, is just like weeping from beginning to end, frankly. I won't be watching. I mean, you know, lots of people love Call the Midwife. I, I just find it too sentimental. Even even though I know everyone says to me, well, it's not that sentimental, there's all these births, and I, I know there are. But for me, yeah, it's just, it's, just, it's just not for me, I think, really. I have a tradition where every now and again, or once on Christmas Day, I go downstairs into the basement and watch some cricket highlights. Uh, maybe that at will that be then. point. Yeah. That will be then. <laughs> maybe at that point. I say tradition, I did it once last year, but <laughs> I'm hoping it will become a tradition. <laughs> so you go into the basement and watch cricket at that point. You know, that's a really weird thing to do on Christmas Day. And it won't come okay. up again until Downton Abbey's finished. <laughs> well, and then exactly we have Downton. But ITV are like, well, God knows why, ITV are not releasing this at all. So like <gasps> nobody can 
see. Nobody can see Dante. So everyone assumes um, it's rubbish if they do that, don't they? Well, or is exactly. that just filmed? Well, no, 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 exactly. I do think that's the thing. I mean, obviously, it means there's going to be a big reveal. Uh, you know, when Sybil died, basically, they wouldn't let us see it beforehand. Uh, Sybil died? I'm so behind. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, when when that happened, sorry for a spoiler from months ago, John, uh, they didn't let us see it. So either that's happening or it's rubbish or both of those things are true. And I'm just a bit like, I understand what an embargo is, ITV. I could have watched this, but I haven't been able to. It's a two-hour monster, isn't it? It's quite long. I'm not quite sure if it's a full two hours or not. Right, so I've ringed in my Christmas radio time, Strictly Gum Dancing, Room at the Broom, uh, probably not Call the Midwife. But give us give us one more Christmas essential, Frosty. So my Christmas essential is uh, Restless, which is an adaptation of William Boyd's novel, uh, his his espionage thriller, uh, and it's adapted by William Boyd. It's on uh, BBC One, and it's in two 90-minute chunks, one on the 27th, one on the 28th, and I love it. So it stars uh, Charlotte Rampling, uh, it's got Hayley Atwell in it, it's got... Um, Rufus Sewell in it. He's lovely. He is lovely. The sweary vicar. <laughs> exactly. It's got Michael Gambon in it. It's got great cast, basically. Um, and, and in fact, interestingly, the structure of the novel, uh, which is, you know, part, is kind of quite flashbacky, works really, really well on telly. I mean, you'd almost imagine that this is a thing that had been created for TV. Uh, it works so well in lots of ways. Um, is that the book about the chap that gets framed for a murder and ends up living in a park? Or is that a different William Boyd novel? I think that's a different William Boyd novel. Oh. Carry this on. is about uh, a lady. Uh, it, so it's about. So it's about. Um, uh, it's got Michelle Dockery in it as well. I should have said. Sorry. Uh, who is also, you know, she's basically all over Christmas, almost as much as Miranda, who seems to be perpetually on over Christmas. So it's about a woman who, uh, sort of, having lived out her life, she was she was a spy basically, and then she finally gets to tell her daughter because she feels like her life is in danger, and that's where it goes from. And then we flash back uh, to her life and look at the present. It's a really good thing. I think the adaptation's great. I think the acting's great. It's exactly what I want over Christmas. Two lovely 90-minute instalments. Perfect. Nope, I definitely got the wrong William Boyd novel. But um, when's this on and where is it? It's on BBC One on the 27th and 28th, So, uh, which I like even more. So you get the first part and then you just the next day you get the ending even better. And I should add in a mild plug for my Boxing Day writing efforts that uh, we'll have the Christmas Day ratings on uh, mediaguardian.co.uk. That's the plug over. Uh, Vicky Frost, enjoy your Christmas dinner and your Christmas viewing, and we'll catch up with you in the new year. Thank you. My thanks to Vicky and to all my other guests, who were Dan Saber, Maggie Brown and Paul Robinson, wishing them a Merry Christmas, and to all you listeners, a Happy New Year. Media Talk is produced by Matt Hill, who, of course, I am also sending my festive felicitations. I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.